Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 3. This is the word of the Lord for you. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, the leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Father in heaven, one more time we come to you asking for help to hear and understand your scriptures. And Lord, we would love for this to be the last time we ever pray this. Because Jesus comes back in the middle of the sermon and we all go home together. But we know that if that doesn't happen, we will need your truth to live. For in your word we find life. For it tells us of Christ. And so we ask now that you would speak from heaven. We don't want to hear from me. My ideas are a waste of time. We want to hear your truth passing through this broken personality that we might see Jesus. Help us to see Jesus, we pray. In his name, amen. Shock and awe. 
I, shock and awe. You remember that term? Many of you that are proper age, my age or older, you remember shock and awe. And for me, I remember one kind of distinct uh, feeling, one kind of Polaroid snapshot when I hear the term shock and awe. You remember it referred primarily to the Iraq war and the bombings that took place there. And I have this kind of Polaroid snapshot fixed in my head of huddling in front of the television with my family and watching, you remember it was the, the green night vision cameras they didn't even have in the black and white yet, the, the infrared, it was the green cameras and it looked like the 4th of July over Baghdad. I mean, remember that, it was just everywhere, just lights everywhere. And remember thinking, if, if that doesn't give you a sense of awe, I don't know what will but that term shock and awe didn't originate with newscasters. You may not actually have known that. Uh, it was uh, developed primarily by two gentlemen in the Defense Department, military theorists in 1996, uh, to develop a plan for how we might win our next war. How do we save lives? Because the whole point of war is to save lives, right? That's, that's the whole point, is we're going to take military action and hopefully spend less lives than what it would cost otherwise to not. And they realize that maybe one of the best ways that we can do this is to try to convince the other guys not to fight back. And so they went back to a guy named Sun Tzu in the book called The Art of War. And Sun Tzu was a Chinese military theorist from many, 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 many centuries ago who actually coined the term. The quote was, The selective instant decapitation of military or societal targets to achieve shock and awe. To convince the other side they wanted to do what you wanted them to do so everybody could stop fighting. To do something so kind of uh, stunning, so almost offensive on the front end that everybody's like, well, we'll, do, we'll do whatever you want, man. We'll, we'll, we'll stop fighting. We don't, we don't need to fight anymore. It's the same thing that was tactic was taken in Nagasaki, Hiroshima. It's the same tactic similar taken by the Germans with the Blitzkrieg to convince by a, a sense of stunning kind of offensiveness, shock. I want to do what you want me to do. We pray for our servicemen. You remember Jonathan Janus, one of the servicemen that we pray for, stationed out at Fort Bragg. He is in psychological warfare and is one of the gentlemen trying to figure out how to do this in the future so that we might be able to save lives by the way that our military works. In this passage, Matthew and John the Baptist are going to take a bit of a shock and awe tactic. To take something that is so kind of offensively stunning that your jaw would drop and you would go, wow, I really need to listen to what's going on. Now, we as Westerners, removed by a couple of millennia uh, who've been raised in the Bible Belt, most of us, and have heard the story of John the Baptist from the beginning, go, well, it's John. I mean... (laughs) It's John the Baptist. Come on, what's shocking about that? What sense of wonder and awe can I get about John the Baptist? I've known him as long as I've known anybody in the Scriptures. He's a part of who I am. Well, yeah, okay, cool, that's good and all. But Matthew's not telling the story that way. Remember, he's trying to tell the story of Jesus to the Jews, a story that at its very core is offensive. 
that the Messiah has come and that they have rejected him. And they need to change. They need to repent. They need to believe. And so he's setting the stage for that. You remember chapter 1, he starts with a genealogy, a genealogy that we as Gentiles go, well, that's boring, except for a Jew. It's laying out that Jesus actually was biologically the, the king of the Jews. He should have been crowned and sat on the throne in Jerusalem. He should have been king. And then uh, chapter 2 sets out with wise men and going to Egypt and angels and stars and that's neat and all. But it lays out that this king actually received a king's welcome, but not from the Jews, from the Gentiles. The Gentiles recognized the king, but the Jews didn't. The Jews are missing the point. They're not listening. Their ears are stopped. Their hearts are hard. And so now in chapter 3, all of the Gospels kind of converge on John the Baptist. But Matthew takes a special focus on the softening of Israel. The same way that Psalm 65 mentioned at the beginning, the call to worship, how the Lord pours out the blessing and it softens the ground, it softens the hills. John's mission is to soften the hearts of of Israel, and it, it's really through, in, in a sense, a campaign of shock and awe. And we're going to look at a couple of categories of that that are shocking, and then we're going to see how that applies to us today. Just in, in shocking points, and you don't have to write these down, these are just points to note. The first is his appearance. Right? In those days, John the Baptist comes preaching. Uh, Matthew skips, right? In chapter 2, we have the birth narrative and the kind of running to Egypt and coming back. He skips the better part of three decades. Remember, John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. We know that this is taking place in 26 AD. This is just about three decades later, right? He's about 30 years old. And he comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. So he doesn't live in the cities. He doesn't live in the town. He moves out to the hill country right near the Jordan River and begins to preach. And we find out in verse 4 exactly what he's going on. He wears a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Which most of us, I remember the flannel graph growing up as a child, had him drawn a little bit like a madman, right? Like somebody we would picture from an insane asylum. And it's not entirely, excuse me, accurate. What they're trying to point out here is uh, connecting to 2 Kings chapter 1, right? You remember your 2 Kings chapter 1. This is how the great prophet Elijah went before. He wore a giant coat of hair with a giant leather belt around him. But here we have the last and the greatest of the prophets showing up. And this prophet takes the dress and the attitude and the appearance of the prophets of old. So that when you looked at him, you would know from the very start, this guy is for real. This guy is serious. Uh, what he's, he's not messing around anymore, right? Too often we picture him as kind of, uh, if you've ever seen like those the apocalypse movies of any kind, everyone has like the crazy street preacher with like crazy beard and the crazy hair that hasn't showered in like nine years and is running around saying, the end is here, the end is here. And that's so often what we picture, John. That, that's not it at all. He's dressed in a way that would scream to the Jews, the prophets of old. 
right? Better, kind of maybe better illustration for us today would be if a president went up to give like a, a presidential speech and dressed like George Washington. All of us right up front would go, what is wrong with President Obama? I probably should listen to this. You may not ever care about his speeches otherwise. You may not remember the last speech you ever listened to, but you knew that if he dressed like George Washington, something serious is happening or something ridiculously silly, one of the two. And that would have been the very similar type of point. The second that you saw John, you would have known this guy is for real. It's shocking, it's stunning, and here he is eating bugs and honey to show he's not living high on the hog. This is not one of those you know, television preachers from North Atlanta, right where we used to live, where they don't even let you take pictures in the inside of the house because it's too expensive. Right? The guy who got in trouble, actually, not too far from where Christian Leisha lived because he, he requested a, a building campaign for his, uh, for his congregation to, to buy him a private jet that would belong to him. $65 million, I think it was, for private jet. Not too bad. This is not John. He's living off the land. He's a bit of a wild man. You would have looked at him and instantly he would have been a bit offensive. He would have been reminding you of Elijah so much so that actually in Matthew 17, Jesus says this, is filling, this man is filling the function of Elijah. He's fulfilling Malachi 4, where Malachi prophesied Elijah would come before the Messiah. But he's not just in appearance something that would have been shocking to the Jews, but he's doing an action that would have been a bit shocking to them as well. He's taking people out and he's baptizing them, which would have been a bit of a kind of a jaw dropper uh, in a moment, right? Baptism happened all throughout the Old Testament, right? That that was not an uncommon thing. Uh, You remember when the priests, when they got ordained for their ministry, they had to take blood. You remember where they put it? It's awesome, right? Their big thumb, their big toe, and their earlobes. They had to have the blood placed upon them. They weren't dipped in it, right? They they weren't dunked in blood. They had it sprinkled upon them. But baptism was a part of Jewish culture. But here, he's doing a new baptism. It's not a Christian baptism. It's not the one that I've received or the one that you've received. It's a baptism designed for the repentance of sins. To say, if you are overcome with your sins... Come, be baptized as a symbol of the change that's taking place. Now, his baptism doesn't do anything. It has no power behind it. In fact, he even tells us that. The one who's coming later, he has power. I don't. Right? The Spirit's going to be with that guy. He's not with me. His baptism does nothing, but it's a baptism as a sign, a symbol of forsaking sin. Which would have, again, been a bit of a a shocking thing to a Jew that we're going to have a sign of forgiveness of sins, a sign of repentance that's going to take place outside the temple. This is not connected to Jerusalem. He's out in the boonies. If you're sorry for your sins, come to the boonies. Let's have a talk. It would have been a bit offensive. It would have been shocking. And then the function that he has, and it's actually Matthew explains it here, that he's a voice crying in the wilderness, and he's preparing the way of the Lord. He's making straight the path. Now, he's not a builder, 
Right? This is not John the Builder. This is not John the Asphalt Guy, the Road Maker. Right? He's not talking literally about making the path of the Lord straight, the way for the Lord. It's talking about softening the hearts of Israel. John is, for all intents and purposes, the coolest kitchen instrument of all time, right? Uh, for young boys growing up, and you go into the kitchen very rarely, uh, most of the time it's when you're looking for snacks, but there was one kitchen instrument that was more captivating than all of them. It looked like Thor's hammer, right? It was about this big in my parents' kitchen, had a nice good handle that you could grip onto, and it had a metal block like this big on the top of it with little points on the end. A meat tenderizer which as a kid was infinitely fun to try to steal from mom and play with because it looked like, you know, a gigantic hammer or some sort of weapon that I could use on my sister. But then you see it used, and what's the purpose of that? Well, you get the hammer and you take the meat out and you pound it into oblivion to make it softer so it cooks better and tastes better. We, we could, in essence, call John the great meat tenderizer of Israel. His mission is to get there and to soften the hearts of the Jews to... to Pound them into listening, to offend them, to, to shake them so they would be ready to interact with the Christ when he would show up. And we find out at the end of this chapter is when he does begin. The divine meat tenderizer preparing God's people to hear his message. And this is where we're going to kind of focus in. Three points to his message. Three points to the message of John, and this is what's so wonderfully offensive. This is what Israel had to have their hearts prepared for and what we need to be ready for today. This points what I've been praying for you this week. First, universal judgment is coming soon. Universal judgment is coming soon. He begins, it's kind of the main point here, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? Kingdom of heaven would have been synonymous for the Jews to say kingdom of God. They didn't like to use the word God. They didn't like to say his name. So they would say kingdom of heaven instead. But the idea being that the judgment of God, his great kingdom, his reign in this place is almost here. And they would have known, all the Jews would have known, when when you hear this being said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, all of them would have already thought, well, this guy looks like Elijah, and funny enough, he sounds like him too. Because all of the prophets talked about this day where God's judgment would come and the world would be destroyed. God would reign. The earth would burn. All the Jews would have known that from the very beginning. They would have known, or they would have thought about Joel, and they would have thought about Amos, all the minor prophets. They would have known these things. That John, the slightly crazy looking, outdated from an era gone by prophet, begins his message with universal judgment is coming soon. It's coming soon, and he's absolutely right. It's coming soon in one of two ways. One, it's either coming with the arrival of the Messiah the second time, and the great coming again, or even upon the death of the people that would listen to him. I mean, listen to some of the things that he says here, right? Skip ahead to verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, right? You get the picture of a, you ever cut down a tree with an axe? Or you don't just walk up and take a swing, right? Right? It never works, right? You walk up and you line it up 
You put the axe where you're going to swing, and then you draw back, and then you swing and hit where you just lined it up. He's saying, God is lining up his divine axe. It's here. It's just a matter of time until he actually cuts the tree down. A tree that doesn't bear good fruit is going to be thrown into the fire. It's going to burn. His winnowing fork is at hand, is clearing the threshing floor. That would have been where they took grain. It was in a kind of like a stone, probably 15, 20 foot circle, maybe 25 feet with a kind of a lip to it. And they would put all their grain into the middle of it and they would have the oxes walk across it back and forth and kind of crush it up. And then they would take a a gigantic kind of pitchfork and fling it up in the air and let the wind blow the trash away. And then what trash stayed nearby, they would pick up and they would use it for fuel for the fire. God's judgment is at hand. I find this interesting. The greatest prophet in the scriptures, the one who's considered the most wise and righteous man of all time, Jesus even says that, He's related to Jesus, actually, you know, by blood. As the angels proclaim his ministry, his arrival, right? They tell Mary that John's going to be born. His message starts with universal judgment. Out of all the things that this man could preach about, the thing he leads with is universal judgment is happening soon. How do you prepare the way for Jesus? Well, you start with universal judgment. And it's interesting, in our church today, not this one, but the American church, the Western church, what have we lost? Universal judgment, haven't we? This is not something we talk about, we think about. I mean, let's be honest, don't raise your hands, this is totally rhetorical, but even in my prayer of intercession for God to judge his enemies, how many of you have that little, t- little bit of turn in your stomach when he says it, like, I can't believe he's actually praying that. But we've kind of put judgment away, haven't we? We don't think about that. We don't think about that for others, and we certainly don't ever think about it for ourselves. I mean, let's be honest, the few times that we do think about God's universal judgment, it's against ISIS. It's against the bad people, wherever they are, whatever the the bad people are, it's against them. We don't ever actually stop anymore and consider that I deserve this. I, too, have been condemned. This warning is for me. It's interesting, actually, out of all of the messages that Jesus talks about, this is one of the ones that he talks about the most. His impending judgment. But Jesus, Jesus love, absolutely he is. But he talked about this a whole lot more than he talked about other things. Well, John doesn't just stop there, right? This is the good news. It's not just, well, you're all going to die. That, that does really no help. Right To have somebody in the movie theater stand up and say, you're all going to die! No good. No good comes from that. He takes a second theme that comes with it, which is uh, not just that universal judgment is coming, but that the Messiah is the key to get out of it. 
Right, he brings them in to be baptized for repentance of sins, to turn from their sins as this kind of symbol. But in verse 11, you see, he, he really begins this profound theological statement. <laughs> I baptize you with water for repentance. I'm going to sprinkle you with water. It's to, to be a sign of your repentance. But there is one who is coming after me who's mightier than I. I baptize you with water. He's going to do something different. In fact, actually, he's so mighty that I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. Now, let's think about it a little differently again. Carrying sandals is a big deal. Right? For me to carry your shoes is not that big of a deal. Right? Once Scott slipped the shoes off, I could grab them both by the heel. I could carry them out, and it'd be no worse for wear. I might wash that hand before I ate dinner, but it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Right? Not, not that big of a deal. Scott's feet are fine. But when you live in a land that is covered in dust, in which there is no real plumbing, and it has wild animals everywhere, sandals take on a slightly different feature, right? They are, in essence, kind of poo protectors of a sort, because that's what is everywhere. And so sandals would have been viciously disgusting things, right? That's why washing feet was such a big deal, because they're nasty things. And here he is saying, look, uh, I'm not even worthy to take the nastiest thing associated with him. I'm not even worthy to carry that. I'm, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of slaves to this man. He is so great. I, I, can't, even do, I can't even do the bad things here. I, I, I can't even come low to him. Like, I'm not even good enough to clean the toilets in his house. Right? That's in essence what he's saying. Because this Messiah will be so great, and whereas I baptize you with water that doesn't do anything, it's just a neat symbolic action, He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? And he's foreshadowing what would happen in Acts where the Holy Spirit would descend upon the people of God and they would have these what look like little tongues flickering flames of fire above them, uh, which would be symbolic of the Holy Spirit's arrival, but also that cleansing that would take place inside. That his holy fire enters us and it burns everything out. Right? When you go to heaven, that's the good news, Right? Only perfect people go to heaven. You can't get into heaven being a sinner. You know that, right? You can't go into heaven if you're a sinner. The problem is I'm a sinner, and so what's going to happen is the Lord's going to burn all of my sin out before I get there. He's going to cleanse me, care for me. The Messiah is the key to getting out of judgment. He is the center point. He's the focus. He's the fixture through all of human history from Genesis 3 to the very end. It's the story of Jesus. The Messiah is the key. It's the point that the Jews had been missing. It's the point that the Jews will be missing in the rest of the book. And it's the point that they will continue to miss. For centuries after, millennia after, that Jesus is the focus for forgiveness. Again, we've kind of lost that too in the American church, haven't we? Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense. If you, if you lose judgment, well, you don't need a Savior, do you? I mean, if, if sin isn't an issue, well, then I can be good enough, can't I? I mean, if my sin is really not, it's more just etiquette problems, well, I can correct my etiquette. I'm, I'm good enough. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Besides, I'm better than my neighbors. They're wretched people. You don't need a Savior. You don't need Jesus. 
And it's interesting that if you lose that universal judgment and you lose that focus on Christ, the main point of the message of John the Baptist becomes repulsive, which is repent. I mean, that's really what he's talking about. Repent. Repent, repent. It's what all of the Gospels narrow in and focus on. Repent. Well, okay, that's neat and all. I mean, repent, that's a word that Bible teachers use, but I I don't ever use, I guess. Some of us might use when we discipline our children. We never never use that. What what does that word even mean? And interestingly, I would say most uh, Reformed commentators think that's a terrible translation here. I mean, it's really awful. Because repentance is so often in American culture, in the West, we equate it with saying, I'm sorry. Or we equate it with feeling sad. Right? I punched my sister in the face. I feel sad. I'm sorry. I repent. That's so often what we equate this with. And it is not. Right? That's not at all what this means. One translator says, he translates, be converted. Another translates it as be changed. Another one says, feel sorry enough to be different. The Old Testament word for it was turn. It's interesting, simple, turn. If you were going that way, now go that way. Turn your life. Turn. Be different for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I would contend that this is... One of those great and important truths in the Scripture that we do not like. And I can tell you, I mean, I'll be just candidly, bluntly candid. My flesh hates the doctrine of repentance. Because the thing I have to turn from is me. What I want what my flesh thinks it needs, the way I like to do things according to what makes me feel good, it means turning away from me being my own boss. And we don't like that. It's hard. We don't want to do that. It's actually a simple message, right? Universal judgment is coming. Jesus is the key. Repentance is the way to access him. It's actually a very simple message. You would think, well, this would be good. We would all like this in some sense. But yeah, interestingly, we don't. And our hearts show that already. But even the text, we see there's a number of different kind of responses that are given. There's a danger to listening, this, to, listening to this and to reject it. And he's going to kind of put a different kind of categories of Responses. We're going to see a number of them kind of right after one another. Right? Verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So this begins to be a big deal. And it would make sense, right? He is shocking. This guy is shocking what he's saying. He's shocking how he lives. He's shocking how he gets dressed. And a couple of people begin to go. And then a little bit of kind of revival breaks out and people start to change. Interestingly, it's not that big of a change because a few years later they're going to kill Jesus. So it's not that big of a lasting thing. But enough people are going out there that suddenly it becomes socially acceptable and almost socially required. Right, Enough of the folks of the Jews of Israel are going out to meet him here and suddenly uh, the powerhouses of culture have to join in. The Pharisees and the Sadducees go out to visit. In fact, actually, this is your first danger. 
Right? It's to confuse a meeting with God for a meeting with people. To go along with the crowd, to go along with the audience, to go along with the people and miss the message. And I would say actually specifically for the children of the church. This is for you specifically. One of those great dangers for those that grow up in the church. Now granted, growing up in the church is the biggest blessing that could be given to anyone just about. But one of those great dangers, children in the church, is that you go along with the crowd and miss the Savior. To see mom and dad go to church and my brothers and sisters and to see my friends and to see my Sunday school teacher and all of those people that love me so much and to love them for who they are and miss the message. It doesn't stop there. The Sadducees and the Pharisees get out there and John responds. And his response is, we'll say, maybe a little bit less than polite, Right? A little bit less than polite. And you have to kind of back up and get these two categories of people. The the Sadducees, they believed in the Old Testament and the Old Testament only. They said, if it's not in the Bible, we don't believe it. And then they immediately just believed it. And we would call them kind of theological liberals today. Um, But they were very, very influential in power. Uh, The Pharisees would have been the people that would have been very, very comfortable in this church. Right? They lived moral lives. They were made a big deal about trying to keep God's word. They memorized massive portions of it, and they took their faith quite seriously. They would be political and theological conservatives. They would be the people that would be comfortable in the PCA. And interestingly, they show up, and what's the response? You brood of vipers. Now, again, this is a guy who's been living out in the hills. He knows how snakes work. And snakes' best technique is what? It's camouflage, so that you can't see them until you step on them and get bit. And his response to them is that. You are now hiding in the wrong place. You are coming out here pretending to have repentance for sins, but in reality it will never actually bear fruit in your life. You are a hypocrite. You look like a Christian. You may sound like a Christian, but you do not have the heart of a Christian. even go so far as to say, look, you may even go so far as to say, we have Abraham as our father. We're Jews. We belong to this. We've grown up in this. This is who we are. It's actually our genetic heritage. And he says, who cares? God made Adam from dirt. He can make Christians out of stones. Who cares? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8. It's the key, right? To have a heart that is so filled with repentance that it spills over. It's so changed on the inside that it overflows. And again, I I might actually again issue a warning. That for us, we have these categories, right? Uh, Those that are easy to go with the crowd, but not have that reality in our hearts or those that are that reformed hypocrite that we had in our prayer right i don't know if you listen to those words my goodness 
I did not write that. My goodness, that is fantastic, isn't it? That we might not be reformed hypocrites who sin safely because we know that grace abounds, who tell our lusts that Christ's blood cleanses them instead of killing them. Who think, well, God can't throw me into hell, I've been saved. Who love true preaching, true churches, true Christians, but live unholy lives. May we never be those people. What do we do with this? Well, I'm going to give one challenge. This is my New Year's Day sermon delivered a uh, a week early. 2016 is in many chances a a great time to kind of start over. It's for uh, adults. We don't have great like summers off. So you get the fall that you kind of start everything over. New Year's is our best chance for this. And I'm going to challenge you that this year to endeavor by the grace of Jesus with the power of the Spirit to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Well, one is it means you need to repent. You need to look to see your sin, and instead of brushing it under the rug or hiding it or not caring about it, to actually own it. And then to feel bad about it, and to feel so badly about it that you change. And that you change so much that you look differently. That's your challenge. Now, you can only do that in the redeeming work of Jesus and that empowering work of the Spirit. This is something you can't do by yourself. But may 2016 be the year that we, this church, embrace repentance and the fruit that flows from it. So that we, too, might be a bit of shock and awe to Fort Mill. How many hearts out there just don't care about who Jesus is? Might we be that shocking person telling them of forgiveness in Jesus? And might we bear fruit keeping with that? Father in heaven, forgive us. Forgive us for our sin. Give us repentance. And we don't often know what that looks like. We certainly need to repent for our repentance. Change us deeply. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.